You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 10. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sana Leup! Hello! Yeah! We've got pretty well reception for the um, for our interviews mm-hmm. lately, um, the, the latest two um, episodes. I'm very happy yeah. about those. And uh, there's lots of interactions. Uh, we've received feedback um, about small errors here and there on the website, mistakes. I love that. Um, we want to make everything better. We want to improve. So keep them coming. We were also contacted by someone who resonated to my initiative uh, regarding the translation of the website, How Does Homeopathy Work? So apparently um, there are people out there uh, working on just that. So that's cool. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, please keep them coming. Please, if you have an event to promote, anything that you think we might be interested in or might other skeptics around uh, Europe are interested in, just let us know, please. Yeah, and you can get in touch uh, by emailing us at info at theesp.eu or you can follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu. You can find us on Facebook. Um And you can also go on to our website, theesp.eu. Thank you. Let's go on to the overview of what we have in front of us uh, for the next week in terms of events across Europe. Well, what we are aiming at in the future is uh, trying to cover events on a weekly basis and... Um, Obviously, because how the episodes are released, it might not be uh, the best idea to uh, talk about events uh, happening on the same day. So instead of that, uh, we're trying to do everything in advance. But it does happen that sometimes we learn about new events that have not been covered in the the latest episode. So this is the case with uh, one of the events that I'm attending. I happen to fly back home for a while. And on the 17th, there's a Sekeshvahir Rar Skeptics in the pub. That's my hometown. I'll be very happy to join them once again. There are lots of uh, activities planned for the future. And uh, it's going to be a, mainly a discussion about those events. So if you are in town, um, feel free to, to drop in. The event is going to be uh, mentioned in detail uh, on the calendar. On the 18th of February in Bedford, there will be a Skeptics in the Pub uh, on the theme Do We Really Have Free Will? And it's going to be a speech by Jonathan M. S. Pierce. And there is a Skeptics in the Pub in Edinburgh uh, on the um, uh, 18th of February uh, as well. And it's going to be uh, about how alternative medicine tried to kill me. Well, that sounds like a good one to, If you survive, <laughs> to go to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We know we all know how we all feel about alternative medicine. So if you're around Edinburgh, go and uh, have a listen. Mm, yeah. Or if you're around Barcelona in Spain on the 20th of February, um, that's a Saturday, you can go and join uh, Barcelona Skeptics in the Pub or Skepticos en el Pub. 
this is why if you if you see somewhere e e e p it's not some uh, weird uh version of a country or an international organization it's skeptics in the pub um in spanish um the speaker is going to be jose blanca uh, it, the title is art and method so i wonder what the the real content is because uh, we we only see on the website a leaflet but it really looks interesting so it's not happening more frequently i i guess that uh, skeptics are covering Uh, artistic topics mm. as well, which is a good thing. Uh, this way of thinking should be uh, spread around, uh, not only in the science-minded community. And on the 22nd of February in Göteborg, or Gothenburg, Sweden, the skeptics there will have their traditional full moon pub, which is always very fun. Is it actually going to be a full moon? Full moon. So they... they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There are lunatics in the true sense. Lunatics. Ah, that's I love it. <laughs> okay, so um, this is what we have lined up for the coming week, but we are pretty sure that there are much more events happening across Europe uh, than we know of. So please keep informing us about those events. And uh, if you do, and you reach us on uh, one of the channels that uh, Yarana mentioned earlier, we're gonna add your event to the calendar that is there for every skeptic around Europe to see. Thank you very much. I think it's time to move on to our interview with the wonderful Professor Edzard Ernst. On every episode, we interview a person representing a European skeptical organization, taking part in a project relevant to European skeptics or doing outstanding work for the promotion of skepticism, critical thinking and scientific inquiry. Our guest on this episode has been conducting extensive scientific research into complementary and alternative medicine. In fact, he was the first person in the world to hold the position of the Professor of Complementary Medicine at the University of Exeter. He is definitely the most widely recognized expert on the field. He's the author of several great books, among which the last one tells the fascinating story of his life and career so far. So, he's a real superhero among skeptics, originally from Germany, now living in the United Kingdom. Professor Edzard Ernst, welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. First of all, it's so great to have you on the show. Uh, we've been meaning to interview you for a while, uh, as uh, we, I think we all have great respect towards your work and your achievements There is something I've been meaning to ask you for a, uh, for a while because I'm, I'm, I'm following your blog. How can you bear that amount of silliness out in the world? Oh, uh, silliness is everywhere, not just in alternative medicine. You, you just have to grin and bear it. Uh, um, as, you, as you grow up, uh, you have to also uh, learn how to laugh about it. That's what I'm trying to do about the blog, I don't take myself all that seriously, as I, I don't take alternative medicine all that seriously, I don't take, uh, I try not to take life all that seriously. You know, that that really comes through, as um, as your your blog is, is 
really kind of entertaining as well as uh, as educational uh so it's um it's it's great fun to read actually so this is how you work on on the kind of frustration that it can generate in you really facing um so much and but you've been facing not only the silliness but the outright threats as well right yes many many threats i um i, I get hate mail virtually every day and I'm on Twitter, uh, and if you follow me on Twitter, you can yeah. actually follow the hate mail. I get hate mail on 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 my blog. I get threats on my blog, and uh, I I get much more physical threats. At, at one stage in in Exeter, we um, were advised to to have a course by the police to uh, um, be able to identify letter bombs be, before they were opened because I didn't quite fancy losing a hand. Or a secretary, it was a letter bomb, uh, um, and and that was because we had very uh, concrete and massive threats after publishing a study um, on on Annika, homeopathic Annika, and uh, a, a local plastic surgeon who was involved in that uh, also received death threats. Uh, so it's it's uh, it sometimes isn't all that funny. Um, but most of the time it, it really is funny because the people who um, write these, these hate mail letters are just so amusing and so amusingly stupid. <laughs> yeah, but still a threat can, can become a real danger as well if it uh, materializes. But your fight against the kind of denialism in light of the evidence that shows that certain alternative treatments are really not showing effectiveness beyond placebo, you've really got your share of this hatred. Um, and this is very nicely, I, I have to say, it's beautifully written in uh, your latest book, A Scientist in Wonderland, a memoir of searching for truth and finding trouble. That book is... Uh, absolutely recommended to all skeptics out there you can you can learn a lot people from that book how to stand up for the truth but you started out actually practicing alternative medicine didn't you yes uh, my 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 story is quite sort of twisted and, and I, my my whole life didn't go in a straight line I, I as a as a child i was treated by quite a famous homeopath in, in Germany, and he was our family doctor and much admired by our family, and um, I liked him too. And for me, homeopathy was just part of medicine. I had no idea that it is uh, weird. I, I didn't really understand what was going on. I, I took his medicine, and I usually got better, because people usually do get better, whether they take medicine or not. And then I studied... Uh, proper medicine at the University of Munich and when I was done um, there was a there, there were too many doctors in in, in Germany and I, it, I found it hard to find a proper uh, hospital appointment and I ended up in in a homeopathic hospital in the only homeopathic hospital in Germany so that that was when I actually first encountered homeopathy in the sense that uh, I had to uh, not only learn how to do it, but understand the assumptions and so forth. And I, I was I, I was aware that it was strange and and contradicting a lot of 
things that I had learned in medical school, but I also was very keenly aware that my patients, uh, which I treated with homeopathy, uh, were, were getting better. And being a young doctor, uh, I was very impressed by it. So um, I was not in the slightest skeptical at that stage. Uh, then I left the hospital, uh, had proper training in, in various other uh, fields of conventional medicine, and then a complete career change. I went into basic science. Uh, I, I moved to London, uh, St. George's Hospital, where I worked in, in a laboratory. Then I went back to Germany, made a PhD, uh, kept one foot in clinical medicine all the time, and became a specialist in rehabilitation medicine, professor of rehabilitation medicine, first in Hanover, Germany, uh, then head of department at the University of Vienna. And through my uh, training in, in science, I began to think critically. And, and that sounds odd to, to be uh, a full-blown doctor and not to really think critically. But I, I do maintain even today that doctors do not normally think critically. We, we, we don't learn how to think critically. And f quite frankly, we don't have time to think critically because we have to take in so much information that critical thinking gets in the way almost. Uh, you don't want to think critically, you just want to pass the next exam, basically. How how come you did not stay in that state? You started to think critically. How come you did that and a lot of other doctors do not? Well, as I said, I, 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 I became a scientist. I, um, working in, in, a, in a laboratory, doing some basic research, reading a lot, having the time for all this, uh, Clinicians do not have any of this. They don't have the luxury. The, the next patient is, is always sitting outside the door uh, waiting. So you, you don't have time to read up things and, and you don't have any inclination to think critically. Uh, that is something that I, I, I learned in, in, in the few years I did basic science. That changed, changed everything for me. It changed my attitude to clinical medicine certainly changed my attitude to homeopathy and all other alternative treatments. And for me, the, the, the big puzzle was uh, how is it that the homeopathic remedies are pure placebos and how is it then that the patients which I, who I treated did quite clearly get better? And, and that is a question... Uh, which is quite easily answered, but it did puzzle me a lot, and, and that, I think, was the main motivator for my research later on. My understanding is that um, in a practitioner's life, those decisions that they have to make on an everyday basis, from patient to patient, are based on recognizing patterns, right? So this is, this is why a normal, quick way of pattern recognition is sometimes key to providing the proper cure, proper treatment. Yeah, pattern recognition uh, is an interesting way of expressing what doctors do, but it concerns only the diagnostic. So if I Wait. want to find out whether somebody has liver failure or or, or 
uh, fatty liver or alcoholic li- uh, liver cirrhosis, then this is helpful. And I, then I will run a few tests, and, and, and in a way that could be termed pattern recognition, even though I don't, um, I, I haven't heard that uh, term in, in the context of, of medicine very often. But then, in terms of in terms of treatment, you do wh- what you've been told. And my generation of doctors certainly did what what they were were told. Evidence-based medicine came in much later, and uh, it's an interesting question: Why did did medicine uh, take about two thousand years or longer in order to be, become evidence-based? Why why is that a new term? What on earth, somebody might ask, did we do before? Uh, well, the answer to that is we 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 did what we were taught and and told. It was eminence-based medicine. Uh, our our teachers had huge influence over us, and when they said you, in in such condition you have to do that, and if textbooks said it, nobody questions it. Nowadays, textbooks are almost obsolete. Nobody reads textbooks anymore. Um, people read systematic reviews, Cochrane reviews, and and guidelines and and whatnot, but not textbooks because uh, knowledge changes faster than textbooks. Do you think then that we should make it mandatory for all medical doctors to to do some research so that they learn how to think critically? Well, actually, in Germany, you you do have to do some research to call yourself a doctor. You you you, you have to actually do a, a medical degree, a thesis, and you, that that's typically is published. So uh, every German doctor who calls himself or herself a doctor has done some research, but this is so minimal. And again, uh, there's research and research. Um, you, if, if you just do it to, to have the degree, uh, it, it is just something that you want to get over and done with, and, and you, you don't learn how to think critically either. It is a special skill uh, to think critically and it involves creativity and it involves a lot of time and lots of reading otherwise you can't do it yeah but you had a fair share of uh, of teaching at the university as well yeah, i did i did teach virtually in all my positions so throughout my professional life i never liked teaching uh, all that much i'm i'm not a gifted teacher i'm uh, I, I, I fear and uh, for me, teaching is so repetitive. If, if I do, if I do one course for one term, uh, and and then the next generation of students comes in, and I do the same one, and they the, the students all have the same blank faces and all ask the same <laughs> questions. And, and and if this goes on for ten years, it it really is very repetitive. It's 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 nothing that fascinates me. And I'm afraid most doctors. Think like like I have just described, and that is is really terrible because I sh- I should be a dedicated teacher, and I should pass on my experience and my thoughts and my knowledge to others, and I should I, I, sh- I should have some pleasure in in doing that, but I simply don't. And uh, what about spreading these ideas and promoting science and critical thinking um, to the general public? So uh, you are doing quite a lot of that. I, I do a lot of that now. Uh, in fact, that's, that's almost all I do these days. 
but that too took took a, a long time with me. Uh, maybe I'm a slow developer. I, I had p- published well over a thousand articles in medical journals before I realized that all this clever stuff uh, misses the target um, because in in complementary medicine it is it is not the doctor that one ought to educate it's it's the consumer and the patient because they make the decisions if, if it's a decision about an antibiotic of course then uh, the doctor is responsible usually and you need to inform the doctor if it's about acupuncture herbal medicine or homeopathy the doctor is usually uh, not involved or very little involved and it is the, the consumer the man in the street and that is something that I learned fairly late on. Uh, uh, Simon Singh probably was was the most influential person in that context. He came one day to me and said, "Let's do a book together." And I said, "Certainly not, uh, because I, I I don't do this type of book, uh, sort of popular uh, approach." And he convinced me, and he he taught me a lot. Um, he convinced me that. This is an important approach, and now that I'm retired, that's basically all I do, uh, and with my blog, with my books, etc., etc., and uh, lectures. I think it's very important. I think we should all thank uh, Simon Singh for for talking you into it, as uh, <laughs> the trick or treatment, uh, the book you wrote uh, uh, together. I think it's it's one of the books that should be on the shelf of every skeptic out there um, and, and, and used as a handbook for really evaluating uh, alternative medicine in general. By the way, um, in that book, do you have anything that you would withdraw now from the book? Well, the, the, the book is a lot about evidence. Uh, and whenever you, you write about evidence, you... Uh, you, you are bound to be outdated uh, uh, pretty soon. The book is now eight years old, and uh, in virtually every field, uh, in the, the four main chapters that we have, herbal medicine, acupuncture, uh, uh, chiropractic, and homeopathy, uh, in all these fields, the evidence has moved on. Uh, it's not that it's dramatically different, but it's it's not it's not really up, up to date. So, um, I, I, I wouldn't change fundamentally the judgments that we make in, in the book, but uh, I would update the, the evidence because somebody who, who reads, reads that and comes from the other side uh, would say, well, uh, that doesn't include this important study or that important review etc etc so we are open to criticism for that um, and uh, it would be would be great to update it but I think Simon is far too busy to, to even consider that yeah um, but is is there anything that is covered in the book uh, that you see differently in the light of the the new evidence that 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 has come up since I, I think with some herbal remedies, uh, the, the evidence has moved on, and 
the book is actually too too positive about some of the herbal remedies. Uh, uh, ginkgo, uh, echinacea are two that spring into my mind where, where we have pretty positive judgments uh, saying that these treatments do work. Uh, now uh, I would be much more cautious about such positive judgments. But all the, uh, and, and the book is full of more negative judgments about efficacy and safety, uh, I think all of these will still stand. Um, it would still need updating because um, we have much more evidence to, to support the negative uh, verdicts. Uh, but the, the direction of the verdict doesn't need to change. But since then, you've uh, you've written other books for the general public, and uh, this and uh, other activities of yours uh, towards educating people resulted in uh, in a great prize that you received in 2015. That's the John Maddox Prize that recognizes the work of individuals who who promote sound science and evidence on a matter of public interest. Congratulations for that. Thank you. I think it was well deserved. Are you working on another book probably or uh I know I know you are there are several upcoming skeptical events that you will attend. One is going to be in Australia, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's several. I, I know about Australia, and I'm, I'm very pleased to, to be going to Australia. I've so often attempted to go to Australia, and I've, I've been several times already, but usually what happens when I plan a journey to Australia, some something prevents me from, from, from coming, so I, I keep my fingers crossed. Uh, I, I think this time... Uh, Will be, will be. I hope it will be lucky, not least because I already have the ticket to fly out. Uh, so, so that that will be good, uh, and uh, lots of lots of other speaking engagements, but not major skeptical conferences, as far as I know. I, I might have forgotten one or two. That can um, still change, right? And you asked me about writing books. Yes, I'm. Uh, I'm very close to the deadline of of handing over the manuscript for a book uh, on homeopathy, uh, which is commissioned by Springer Verlag. Uh, uh, and uh, this will be a book in two parts. One part is a sort of narrative in ten chapters where I just try to outline very factually, without taking sides, uh, what homeopathy is, what its history, and, and so forth. Uh, and the second part will be like a lexicon, where you can uh, look up things like uh, potentiation or, or succussion, all, all, these, all these terms that homeopaths use, and which are very nebulous and, and don't mean a lot to um people who are who are not into homeopathy so this this will be a book I, I I'm trying to write it in such a way that um, pro homeopaths can read it without uh, throwing it in in the in the corner at, at the second page so it will be very neutral very factual um, but if anybody reads it to to the end this person 
is unlikely to ever take a homeopathic remedy. Oh, that's, that sounds really intriguing and it's something to really look forward to. Uh, I don't know what it's called yet, but uh, it, it's going to be in English and it's, uh, it's going to be published by Springer. Uh, Springer usually do, only do sort of professional books, but it's going to be for, for the lay public. They, they have a sort of little niche uh, in, in, their, in their publishing program for lay books and, and that's where it's going to appear. Is it also going to be as, as nicely written as The Scientist in Wonderland? I really enjoyed, sometimes even the sentences uh, uh, gave me so much joy um, just, just to read them through. For me, at least, uh, being a foreign speaker of English, that was a, a really amazing experience. Well, that, that's a nice compliment. Uh, it, that book actually was the most difficult book uh, that I've ever written. I worked uh, over five years on, on this book and I threw the manuscript into the, into the bin uh, several times and during these five years the whole concept of, of, of the book changed. It was meant to be an inside story about alternative medicine and basically focusing on, on my 20 years in Exeter and, and all these uh, interesting things that happened there. And when I first gave it uh, to somebody independent to read, uh, he said, no, no, we, we, this is, you must turn this into an autobiography. You must, turn, uh, you, you must tell much more about yourself. And this is where the problem started, because I, I don't think that I'm important enough uh, to speak about myself, and I don't like to speak about myself, and I can't write very well about myself so that because I'm, I'm a scientist and I, I write like a scientist and it's very dry uh, and it, it wasn't working so I, I had all but given up on, on the book but then via my blog some, somebody um, uh, I, I got into contact with, with somebody Lise Lubetkin who and, and, and we exchanged emails. We, we be, I've never met her in person, but we, we became friends via emails. Not, not even spoken to her on the phone or, or Skype. As you know, I hate Skype. Uh, and, <laughs> and, um, she, she's, she, and she's a professional writer. Uh, and, and she said, let me have a look at your manuscript. And, and she helped me a lot with the manuscript. Uh, and if if you say it reads very well, then this must be entirely thanks to Louis Lubetkin, because uh, my writing is is much drier, much much more scientific. Um, and I, I'm afraid the homeopathy book, which I'm just about to finish, is is going to be quite dry as well. So I don't have too many high expectations about the writing style. I think we're looking forward to, to see the content, uh, mainly. Yeah, the but thing about, about the uh, Science in Wonderland was that it was published into, in, in German, and uh, in, uh, the German edition was a great success. Uh, uh, I didn't expect that at all, and in a way it's a, it's a compliment. I, I didn't translate it into German, it was professionally translated.
and and came out a few months after the English version. And now, uh, um, a few weeks ago, a big big article came about me came out in uh, El País, the Spanish uh, journal, and yes, and I saw that. that. And huge amount of, generated a huge amount of interest uh, of uh, I think five thousand comments online and uh, really quite amazing. And since then, um, we have uh, three Spanish publishing houses interested in 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 doing this Spanish translation of Science in Wonderland. So uh, we haven't had a final decision, but it might happen. Oh, and uh, are, are there any plans for, for other languages as well? Because, uh, for example, the, the Trick or Treatment has been translated into several languages. I, I certainly know of a Hungarian version. There's a Swedish version. Uh, uh, well, there are about 20 different language versions. Yeah. Trick or Treatment, yeah. That's impressive. That, that was very, very gratifying to, to see the international in interest. Uh, for for uh, scientists in Wonderland... Um, I'm, I'm amazed even that a German version uh, appeared. Um, the Italians ha have shown some interest. There's a uh, Portuguese publishing house that has shown some interest. And I'm quite amazed because it's, it's my life story, and my life story is, has, bears very little relation to these countries. But it's fascinating. It's like reading a novel uh, of the stories of an adventurer. <laughs> Yes, uh, it, 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 much of it feels like an adventure, and and in in my view, the alternative medicine bit, which is the last twenty years, is is the least important. And I, I think the the other stuff with Nazi medicine and the German past and and all what happened there is not only more important but much more exciting. Is that the word? Before putting out any spoilers, there are you still in contact with uh, with those institutions that that you mention in the book, like uh, for example the, the the University of Vienna? Are there changes that have taken place uh, since since you left, uh, or it's still something similar to what you experienced then? Vienna was was interesting uh, because basically when I left. I hadn't published uh, the important article about the uh, Nazi past. Uh, I was still working on on that when, when I left Vienna, so they they didn't have much reason to to be angry with me, but they were extremely angry because nobody <clears throat> in the last fifty years in in a full professor position had uh, left. Uh, Vienna and and uh, told them uh, basically why why he's leaving. So, so they 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 felt insulted by my leaving. And uh, shortly after I had arrived in in Exeter, there were uh, about a dozen newspaper articles that I had left and stolen money from my department and things like that. Uh, Obviously not true, but uh, this is how how they reacted, um, and and relationships were very tense for at least five years or so, and then they invited me back, and 
in a way we made peace again and I'm, I'm regularly in, in, back in, in Vienna and, and enjoy coming back to, to Vienna. Lots of things have changed. They, they have actually addressed the, the problems with, with their Nazi past. Uh, most specifically, they, they have uh, got rid of the Pankov Atlas, which was a, a stone of contention, if you remember. Yeah. In, in that, that story, it, I think it, it, it vanished from, uh, from across the world uh, from, in medical libraries. And, and that is quite important because it was the standard uh, uh, anatomic atlas for a long time, apparently the best, uh, the best drawings uh, uh, compared to, to other atlases. So, so uh, they have taken steps and, and they have addressed the skeletons in, in, in the closet uh, and, and uh, nowadays we are best friends again. And do you have any uh, similar perspectives with uh, the Prince of Wales? No, no. <laughs> Vienna changed because the persons changed. Mm. They're diff different people. Un unless you put in a, a different person as a, a Prince of Wales, I, I don't have any hope to have a good relationship mm. uh, with, with that position. I think that man is beyond hope and uh, far too unable to to even qu uh, begin to question uh, whether he's right or not. Mm, that's very nicely put. If go back to homeopathy a little bit, if we look into the future, there's been some recent developments. There have been statements from Australia, from the Swedish and Hungarian academies of science. And also uh, there are investigations in the UK whether to put homeopathy on, on a blacklist. Are you optimistic when it comes to the future? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm an uh, unchangeable optimist when it comes to, to these things. Progress t t takes a long time um, in, in homeopathy and, and, and many other areas, but in progress will eventually been, be done and... Uh, Evidence and reason always prevails in, in medicine because it's, it's not about ideologies. Ideologies don't improve healthcare. Uh, it is about evidence and uh, it, it, it may take a while, but I think the days of homeopathy in the NHS, for instance, are counted and, as you say, in, in many other uh, countries, have taken opposition to it. And for me, that's important, not because so much money is being wasted on homeopathy, but it's a question of principle. Either we take evidence-based medicine seriously or we don't. And if we do, we cannot tolerate uh, homeopathy on public funds. I fully agree. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not anybody who wants to forbid homeopathy. If somebody wants to, to use it, he should be using it. Uh, why not? Uh, but I don't want to pay for it. So uh, where do you see the role of uh, legislation and, and trying to push legislative changes through uh, on a European level? Because it does seem to be happening in the United Kingdom, but still on a European level, 
it's still probably too... I don't think we need, we need legislation. We, need, we just need to adhere to, to, the, to the principles of evidence-based medicine. We have to ask ourselves how to, how to spend our money best. Um, uh, what responsibility do we have vis-à-vis patients? What are the ethics and the morals in, involved? And if we consider all these questions seriously, we will automatically stop using uh, bogus treatments. For that, we don't need legislation. We don't need to forbid by law homeopathy or anything else. Um, Of course, we're not talking about uh, forbidding it by law. But, uh, for example, distinguishing between real medicine and homeopathy, because um, in several European countries... uh, homeopathic treatment or homeopathic remedies are considered medicine. So that is something that is backed up by legislation as well. So is it is it something that, in your opinion, doesn't need to be changed? Uh, yeah, um, uh, I see you're talking about medicine regulation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think medicine regulation also doesn't need to be changed. Medicine regulation, as far as I know, requires that a medicine has to demonstrate that it is effective, safe, and of decent quality. Uh, if, you, if you require that of homeopathy, it is, it is off the shelves anyway. The, the, the existing regulation is well sufficient to deal with homeopathy or anything else. Uh, what we have to get rid of is these uh, special pleading clauses for mm. homeopathy, which exist uh, in in the European country, oh, yeah. uh, countries, uh, and in, in in Germany, and um, in particular, a very very strong lobby, lobby group that that uh, sees that these regulations aren't, aren't being changed or aren't, aren't being even discussed. And I think that will be very difficult because once we have financial interests on top of ideology uh, to fight with and to contend with, um, it, it gets really tricky. Yeah, so the collaboration between European sceptical organizations should probably focus on um, educating the general public, right? focus on, on, on the general public, um, edu- educating the general public, um, but not not just the general public. I, I think one has to also focus on pharmacists, because these are the guys who sell that stuff, Yeah, and they have, they have ethical codes which say very clearly they shouldn't be selling it. So we, we have the, the best support we could possibly dream of, namely medical ethics or, or even morals, human morals. And we just need to remind and keep reminding pharmacists, doctors and other healthcare professionals that they uh, have to adhere to their own ethical codes, which we haven't imposed on that. They have imposed uh, on themselves. And pharmacists, for instance, um, ha- have a choice. They're either shopkeepers, and then they can burn their ethical codes, or they are healthcare professionals, and then they bloody well have to adhere to them. 
Yeah, I think that's that's um, a very clear principle, and uh, they should really adhere to it. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned that you're on Twitter, and uh, you have a, um, a website where you're uh, running your blog, that's uh, adsatearns.com. Yeah, I do recommend everyone to follow Edzard Ernst's uh, tweets as well as um, his blogs. Well, Edzard Ernst, uh, I think this really sums it up. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I wish you all the success with your, n- your new book, with the translations of uh, A Scientist in Wonderland as well. And the best of luck to this time really get to Australia. Okay, uh, thank you. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, that was our interview and that wraps up our 10th episode. Um, Stay tuned because next week we are coming back with an episode with all the news and all the hot topics, the usual events and stuff, and with uh, shorter interviews as well. So... Talk to you next time, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then... Please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe You are listening to the ESP. <sighs> Here he yeah. goes again, Pontus. Me again, me again. Ah, oh, that's that's. No, you you gotta work on your accent, though. Silly Akush. boy, I know. It's it's totally made up shit. It's just to annoy Pontus. <laughs> it works. <laughs> <laughs> Pontus, don't don't give him so easily. Just pretend he doesn't bother you. <laughs> I'm just encouraging him. Yeah, I'm like... But uh, he's he's too much of an honest man. Yeah, for, yeah, uh, that's to my he is, yeah. Honesty. But, I think I think we should get rid of that uh, that what? music and do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like do <laughs> do the choir, the ESP yeah. choir, <laughs> the ESP oh, yeah. choir. I can be the rhythm section. Boom, 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 boom.